The following presentation is intended only for immature audiences. Oh boy. Oh boy. And God said, let there be F-bombs. And they were good. And they multiplied. Right here in this podcast. Oh boy. Oh boy. Hi. And welcome to episode 14 of the Hansel and Gretel Code. Hooray! In our last episode, we learned that this famine ordeal, well, it actually meant that our woodcutter was meeting his maker, face to terrifying face, albeit without having to go through the usual uh, formalities. What's that? You know, uh, like uh, dying first? Mmm, I believe that when I see it. In other words, his ordeal was a genuine holy terror, amounting to an experience of the deity. Oh God, oh Jesus. I also promised that we would find out why God, of all people, would come knocking on his door bearing such a lousy hostess gift. Open the door. Go away. Go away. I mean, come on, what's wrong with this deity? Who needs a famine or a nasty papal interdiction? Yeah. How about a nice bunch of flowers and a decent bottle of wine? Hooray! Part 1 Teil 1 In which we find out why such a nasty, awful thing is happening to such a nice, humble guy. Why, God, why? Oh, the humanity. Well, of course, the simple answer is because that's the kind of thing all great stories require. At least if they want to grab our attention and hold our interest. Shut up, mate, you boring. The silly, albeit partially true, answer is that the deity is just one great big ham who insists on being in every story ever told. What? I mean, think about it. We're all familiar with the deity showing up as a deus ex machina. No. Well, come on. That's just the deity wearing a metaphoric smiley face mask, swooping in at the end of a story to make sure that everyone lives happily ever after. That's nice. Oh yeah, maybe nice. But outside of fairy tales, it can be pretty cheesy and much too predictable. Uh, why is he wearing a lampshade? Forget about it. Unless that same deus shows up early and throws a monkey wrench into the works, eh, this wouldn't even be a story. That's correct. At worst, it'd be some forgettable no-news news. Blah, 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 at best, it could be an avant-garde brain teaser. Just like Andy Warhol's eight-hour film of the Empire State Building. Which, uh, by the way, was probably the most famous, and I gotta say, brilliant filming of a meditation experience ever made. Are you kidding me? I kid you not. So, of course, for a story to be even mildly entertaining, it's gotta have a complication. And if a story is gonna be a real thriller, which Hansel and Gretel is, it's got to have a super significant ordeal. One that causes a whole lot of angst, 
Oh no. If not outright existential grief and terror. Every thriller needs something that does more than just rock the boat. Something has to actually tip it over and dump us in the drink. Oh, crap. And while we're out there flailing around, uh, that's when the deity gets to show up wearing his favorite costume. Who is it? Land shark. <laughs> oh, Walter. <laughs> Land shark. Part 2 Teil 2 In which we ask a few crucial questions Like What do you mean, us? And Hey, who left all of these dirty dishes? Uh oh Well, yes, I do mean us Because that's the other thing that makes a story great Not just some random complication A great story has to be all about us and our problems. Is that so? A great story has to metaphorically call up the same intense terror and angst we ourselves have already had, or will eventually and inevitably experience. You can't be serious. Okay, so I get it. Our fictional woodcutter is the one who's terrified. He's facing death by starvation. A catastrophic ordeal so overwhelming that, historically, it leaves people little choice but to seriously consider cannibalism and infanticide. That shit is fucked up. And despite the real-life occurrence of horrific famines, even in this day and age, so very few of us reading Hansel and Gretel have ever faced involuntary starvation. I want my pizza right now. I am very hungry. So, yeah, if this is such a great story, it's totally legitimate to ask where we are in all this. Absolutely. And to figure that out, all we have to do is ask, what kind of first world ordeal normally terrifies the bejesus out of us? Especially in our well-fed postmodern lives. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> well, I can tell you from my own experience that true existential terror, it doesn't have to be about a life and death issue. Uh-huh. It certainly can, of course, and far too often at that. Of course. And while Hansel and Gretel is a story that plays on the medieval experience of the Great Famine of 1315, it also includes the common medieval experience of papal interdictions, with their nasty threat of eternal damnation. <laughs> so, what's the nature of any ordeal? modern or otherwise, that puts the fear of God into us, without being life-threatening. So how should I know? Who even cares? Think about all the run-of-the-mill and typically annoying ordeals that plague us every single day. Um, nope. Stuff that may be a pain, but doesn't normally terrify. Yeah, we don't want to do anything to scare your children. That's the last thing we want to do. <laughs> We're talking problems that often end up on the back burner as we procrastinate our way forward and try to skip out on making whatever uncomfortable decisions they require of us. But what if? Yeah, they can be busy and expensive, like car trouble or a leaky roof. But we're really just talking all of life's dirty dishes. 
The most difficult and significant ordeals, though, the serious kind that we all eventually face, well, they don't brook any such procrastination nonsense. They pull the rug right out from under us and produce an immediate seismic shift in the status quo. I hate Mondays. So forget the back burner. As soon as they show up, they got the smoke alarm blaring. Ah, shit! In other words, they demand our attention. They demand a decision. And more like life's dirty diapers? They really do stink. Ugh. Ew. Now, what's terrifying about them is that they only give us two options. A rock and a hard place. What? I don't know if you remember Aaron Ralston. No. Well, he was the guy who got stuck out in a desert canyon all alone. And, jeez, the guy had to amputate his own arm in order to get out of there alive. Yikes! Yeah, well, that's the literal definition of a rock and a hard place. A life and death situation with no wiggle room and only the slimmest chance of escaping alive. In these moments, there's just one thing to do. Go to a therapist. Well, metaphorically, the only space that's left to us is for a decision. A or B. The rock or the hard place. What the hell? Well, as Soupy Sales often said... Now, just what do we mean by that? Yeah, what do we mean by that? Well, what the metaphor really means is that we're stuck in a situation in which no matter what we decide, there's no chance in hell things will ever go back to being the way they were. Oh, no. See, that's the real nature of the problem. Going forward, there's zero space left for the status quo. Oh, no. That sucker is done and dusted. Oh, no. And the only choice left means coming to terms with a brand new and extremely unpleasant set of circumstances. Oh, no. In other words, a brand new status quo. Oh, no. What seems to be the problem? Well, remember, we're still talking about a terrifying ordeal. Although ordeals like this still mean that we do indeed have a choice, we get to choose one of those two hardball options. What are they? All right, one of them, let's call it option A. That one will always leave us feeling some combination of anger, rage, and frustration. That's bad. Well, that's right, because with option A, we're pretty sure we have no choice but to accommodate the new status quo on its terms. Huh? You know, kind of like those stupid software licensing agreements. Those uh, end-user uh, thingies. E-U-L-A. Hey! Hey, let me out of here! This is a mistake! I agreed by accident! You can't agree by accident. There's a fail-safe built in. Even if you click on See? Agree- exactly. The terms involved in option A are nasty. And we know for a fact we're going to hate having to live with them. And of course, that's Always the default option. Now that other option, option B. You guessed it. That's the one that strikes fear in our hearts. The very idea of option B always seems crazy. Because choosing it will always leave us feeling abject existential terror. 
so that is so funny. <laughs> uh, oops, uh, wrong clip. Well, anyway, the crazy thing is that we do indeed need ordeals like this. You're kidding, right? Well, no, not exactly. See, otherwise we'd all be too content with the status quo, which, by the way, is no safe haven. Why the fuck not? Well, that's because life. Hmm? Life keeps everything changing. And just like Ozymandias and his empire, even the most stable status quo eventually crumbles from stagnation and entropy. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. And to fight that trend, we all need something to test our mettle. Something to push us completely out of our filter bubble or comfort zone and force us to make hard choices and life-altering decisions. Decisions we could never have otherwise imagined making. You're scaring me. In other words, we all need to consider option B. <laughs> no. Well, if that doesn't ring a bell with you, that's okay. What I'm talking about, though, is that we need to be forced to the very brink of option A, of accepting a situation we know we're gonna hate. Why? Well, since option A comes with all sorts of new oppressive restraints and punishing demands, and very often of a financial nature. It costs you money. The new status quo it heralds it doesn't scare us. It just pisses us off. Damn. Makes us angry, depressed. Miserable. Oh, no. And it's that anger. Oh! That knowledge of having to agree to certain misery. Damn you! That's just about the only incentive that could force us to even consider option B. Uh, no. That other no. unthinkable option. No, 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 no. Mm-mm. No way. See, option B doesn't come with constraints or demands. It also doesn't come with instructions. It's just one hell of a straight-up nightmare. <laughs> and that's because option B, it amounts to a change in consciousness. Option B means looking at things from a whole new perspective and a whole new mindset. I can't see anything. I don't know where I am. Have a little more faith. Look around. And that means stepping out on an existential tightrope. A terrifying and even dangerous place with no safety net. It's a place where we don't know what's going to happen next, or exactly what we're supposed to be doing out there. What are you doing there? In other words, it means going out on the cutting edge of consciousness and daring to enter the dark forest of the unconscious. You coming, Curtis? And that makes us all just like our woodcutter, living right on the edge of the forest, following his calling and eventually facing an abrupt end to the status quo. It's too late now. Part 3 Teil 3 In which we join the Holy Orgy, Kama Sutra, uh, I mean, uh, you know. Transformation can be fun. <clears throat> Serious changes in our personal status quo, they may not come with instructions or cool illustrations, 
but ideally, they involve a ritual of some sort. Some ritual or ceremony to initiate us into the new situation, and our role in it. I will marry you, and then we'll be together forever. Um, I think not. And that's where we need the guidance of a wise ritual elder. I'm sorry, what? Someone who knows the ropes and knows how to help us negotiate our way through life's toughest ordeals via option B. And that's so we can choose it without getting ourselves killed or maimed or, even worse, turned to the dark side. <gasps> well, unfortunately, that's precisely what's missing in our civilized postmodern culture. What did you say? What did you say? Well, sure, we have plenty of tribal elders, parents and shrinks, Rabbis and priests and imams, just to name a few. Far too often, though, they're just as clueless as the rest of us. My daddy was a strict disciplinarian. When we'd done wrong, he'd strip us butt naked, lay us out in the sun, and cover our bodies with bacon, lean bacon. And as a result, we're left to negotiate our way through life's complications and ordeals on our own. Or worse, burdened with flawed or even outright crappy advice. Advice that almost always amounts to settling for option A. This is gonna suck. But guess what? What? The fictional complications and ordeals and fairy tales and stories like Hansel and Gretel well, they come with a built-in wise ritual elder. Really? Who? A Yoda, if you will. <laughs> Crazy little man. Yeah, well, I don't mean any specific character. Or even the storyteller. I mean the story itself. <laughs> Excuse me? Because the story already knows the right way through life's ordeals. The way through to the situation that's usually called happily ever after, but which really amounts to a successful initiation into the new status quo via option B. Ah! It's the story itself that ushers us out of the old status quo and into a newer, wiser, and more experienced state of being. <laughs> right. In other words, it offers us the way through to a transformation. Awesome! So the difficult ordeals that put us between a rock and a hard place and definitively end the status quo, they can rightfully be called transformative. I don't fucking want that. And I can tell you that Hansel and Gretel is a great story because it's all about us. About following our calling to the place where we're meant to be living. Where? A place out on the cutting edge of our own consciousness. Where? Just the way our woodcutter is following his calling and living on the very edge of his great forest. Interesting. And it's about the kind of choices we're meant to make in the face of a transformative ordeal. 
Because in this fairy tale, we discover we're all living the life of our woodcutter, meaning that grace is in very short supply. Maybe. Well, sooner or later, in the course of our lives, we're all going to get the sense that grace has completely run out on us, just as it did with our woodcutter. Aw, why? Well, because while his famine is a literal holy terror that means business with him, the business in question doesn't just force a change in his status quo. It's meant to mirror a change that's eventually going to be forced on us and our status quo. Get out of here. This change is meant to initiate us into our own new status quo via option B. And transformation. Why, why, why? Because change is the story of all our lives. Naturally. And transformation? Well, that's our calling. Unquestionably. Well, yeah. Of course. And that's the long answer as to why the deity has shown up. Positively. The gift that's being offered? That's transformation. Indubitably. And while we may all understand transformation to be a wonderful thing... Oh, absolutely. Something we all aspire to... Amen. You know, that new-agey, rainbows-and-unicorns meme of changing from a caterpillar into a butterfly. Exactly. What we're really thinking of? That's the celebration. Yep. The after-party. Woohoo! <laughs> I like that! Quite unfortunately, there is no transformation without an ordeal. Ugh, that is so not cool. And while we'd all rather skip the ordeal part, it's always an offer we can't refuse. Nope, nope, forget it. Forget it. Well, the problem here is the deity and Don Corleone have a whole hell of a lot more in common than we're accustomed to believe. Don't, don't say that. So this famine is the act of a god who expects and demands transformation and a growth in consciousness. Not just from our woodcutter, but from all of us. Stop grumbling and get it done. In the case of our woodcutter, we can call his ordeal transformative because he's being forced to make decisions and take actions that would change him from one state of being to another. I'm going to polygonize you piece by piece. Well, either a higher one, making him a hero, or a lower one, making him, at the very least, a loser. Oh, no. Having to deal with an awful change in the status quo that will also force a change in him from one state of consciousness to another. Uh? One that's more experienced, wiser, and shall we say, more awake. Or one that's just angry, sneakier, and shall we say, more, um, on the make. Well, from my high-tech super analyzer thing, I can tell that not only he's strong, but he can think and will continue to learn. I will call it... Spaghetti. Uh, no. Oh, boy. Well, that's transformation for all of us. Seriously? Well, yes, because that's the real and not-so-secret meaning behind all good stories, and the real marrow of fairy tales, which, 
by way of metaphor, invoke our own transformative ordeals. How? Well, they do that by grabbing our interest and attention, allowing us to identify with the characters, and then they demonstrate what's required of us. What's that? Well, since that four-square woodcutter family represents us and our own consciousness, the change required of us here and now is to figure out and recognize what real, true-to-life grace is, so we can do something to make it at least more available, if not free-flowing in our own lives. Damn this good shit! Part 4 Teil 4 In which we find out that we might be on the wrong road and probably because somebody sabotaged our GPS. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Everything that lives is designed to end. We are perpetually trapped in a never-ending spiral of life and death. Is this a curse or some kind of punishment? I don't want to tell you. Still, how and why can we say the deity is responsible for this ordeal? I mean, sure, a famine can be called an act of God. In even a papal interdiction, that qualifies as a man-made act of God. But just, uh, where's the God in these dastardly acts of God? I don't know, mate. Well, the Old Testament book of Job provides a serious hint. If you remember the story of Job, No. Yahweh, or Jaws, as I like to call him, well, he makes a bet with his number two son, Satan. Ooh! And the bet is that good old Job, a trusting, humble, and God-fearing soul, a guy uh, just like our woodcutter, well, he'll put up with anything, as long as it's approved by Jaws himself. <laughs> what a sucker. <laughs> In other words, as long as he knows it to be the so-called will of God. And that's exactly what Isaac Dennison, the author of Out of Africa, called uh, the second true happiness. Knowing for certain that you're following the so-called will of God. What did you say that was called? Well, make no mistake. Not only is following the will of God what following your calling is all about, we're all meant to follow our calling. Yes, I've got an inside job for you. And for sure, it's also what Joseph Campbell called following your bliss. <laughs> I like it. Except uh, following your bliss, yeah, that's rarely a cakewalk. And it's rarely some nice poetic journey down the road less traveled. Especially in this culture. Huh? Yeah, well, that's because in this culture, the default vocation or calling is to follow the money. That's correct. Transformation ordeals, in turn, often have more to do with cash flow than almost anything else. I paid $5 to hear that. And that's why using the phrase... Cash is king. That amounts to a near-blasphemous understatement. In this culture, cash is God. That's what we really mean. Don't, don't say that! Except by now, we know from this story that cash, it's not the real grace. 
nor is it the real God. All right, well, that's, uh, that's good enough for me. Uh, it's close enough. Unless we're confident in the dogmatic tenets of whatever religion we follow, we all tend to do a bit of flailing around, trying to find who and what that God really is and what the hell he or she really wants from us. The bathrooms in my headquarters hasn't been cleaned in months. And we only go on that kind of quest if we're put between that metaphoric rock and hard place by an ordeal that's utterly soul-crushing. Son of a bitch! In other words, when grace completely runs out on us and throws us into the terrors of a dark night of the soul. I can't see anything. I don't know where I am. Well, that's because for plenty of us, and maybe especially those of us drawn to the story of Hansel and Gretel, we realize we're not always certain what or where that blissful path of following the will of God actually is. I often think about the God who blessed us with this cryptic puzzle. Well, I have to say that I'm tired of searching. All we can know is that if we're not already on that path, it's a sure bet that sooner or later we're going to run into that fateful fork in whatever road we are on. Well, guess what? I already have. Part 5 Teil 5 in which we end up at Niagara Falls, again. And this time we can just about see someone poking their nose through that huge wall of water. God opens the sea with the blast of his nostrils. Uh, Damned if we aren't meant to take the scarier road. Yet, that's the point of this story. What? This fairy tale terror is a sure sign that we're in the presence of the deity. You dare to face a goddess? Yeah, sure. There are mystics and saints who reveled in the loving and practically erotic presence of their god. We're just friends. And any one of us who's had what's normally called a religious experience, we felt it to be a genuine blessing, a real taste of grace. My grace is eternal. And the kind of soul food we'd all love to keep snacking on. Damn this good shit! On the other hand, there are plenty of biblical passages attesting to the terrifying nature of God's presence. One of them being Hebrews 10.31. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Uh Uh-oh. Actually, passages like that, they're a dime a dozen. And they all refer to the usual morality business of following the rules. Aw, uh, Mom, do I have to? Their message, like so many fire and brimstone sermons, well, it's meant to serve as a warning. That if the deity finds out we're not paying close enough attention to those rules, by God, he sure as hell is going to make us pay. Naughty, 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 naughty dog. But there are a few other passages that speak to the terror the deity provokes when the guy isn't pissed off. Oh, really? One of the most famous is from the Old Testament, when Yahweh appears to Moses as a burning bush. That's because seeing the face of the deity was a privilege denied mortals. May my beauty blind you. Although 
the particular passage in Exodus, it only says Moses was too frightened to look. As expected. Of course, this frightening aspect of deity was more emphatically obvious in mythology. Case in point, Zeus, having a thing for certain mortals, he promised his girlfriend, Semele, the mother of Dionysius, that she could have whatever she wanted. Well, all right. Anything you want. Anything. Unfortunately, having chosen to see his face, she was burnt to a crisp by the very sight of him. Ugh, that is so not cool. And right along those same lines, St. Paul, who had his own I met the deity story, after getting knocked off his horse on his way to Damascus, well, he said, the deity dwells in unapproachable light and is someone whom no man has ever seen or can see. Can you see it now? What are you doing? I want to see it. See it? Pardon my lack of excitement. I've seen it before. Well, apologies to St. Paul. What I'm talking about is something even more potent than a Klieg light in your face, and much more visceral than the bland and catechetical abstraction known as fear of the Lord, one of the so-called seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. On the next day of Christmas, my true love sent to me seven swans as women. Oh, when I suppose you think that's funny, huh? I don't know, but... What I'm getting at here is the psychological fact that the divine has two faces. One nice and one not so nice. What? Yeah, well, this is something of a Gnostic concept. Oh, boy. Yet, um, consider the curious case of Nicholas von Flue. Who's that? Well, he was the 15th century mystic and patron saint of Switzerland sometimes known as Brother Klaus. Oh, brother. He was visited by the deity and was not only shown the deity's terrifying face, but according to his biographer, this transformed his own face into some sort of permanent, terrifying grimace that frightened the hell out of all the locals. <coughs> well, visible or not, aside from being too radioactive for humans to come into contact with, what could be so frightening about a deity who isn't specifically pissed off at us? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> what I'm getting at is the word numinous. A word that accounts for those two faces of the deity by combining horror and holy into one and the same experience. What? Well, if you remember from episode two. No. I spoke about the experience of the numinous or holiness out in the forest. In other words, how our woodcutter and his Germanic ancestors were able to experience grace and the presence of their deities out in nature, and specifically in the forest. Um, yo, I uh, said the forest. That's it. That's it. That's better. Well, that word numinous, that was coined by Rudolf Otto in 1917 as a way to include and define everything that's holy. 
especially an existential experience of the deity, what we'd normally call a religious experience. And uh, guess what? What? That definition includes the concept of terror. Where is your God now? Well, Otto explained all this in a book known in English as The Idea of the Holy. It's a pretty lengthy book. It's all complicated. And while I can't expect you to just take my word for it, I did try to explain the concept of the numinous in episode three by referring to those uh, made-of-the-mist boats that take you right up close to the bottom of Niagara Falls. Oh, yeah. I've only taken that ride twice, but I can tell you it's an experience that's impossible to put into words. It can really give you chills. And that, of course, is the nice face of the deity. That's awesome. And while the not-so-nice face is only implied in coming so very close to that rushing wall of water, it's still uh, right there. You can feel it. That's right, baby. And all it would take would be a rogue captain to nose the boat too close. That would allow the deity to poke his not-so-nice face through that wall of water and right into the lives of those passengers. Jesus Christ. Now, despite the fact that this fairy tale was written long before 1917, it's perfectly legitimate for us to see the concept of the numinous in our woodcutter's panic. If only because we, in our time, have access to Otto's explanation of the word. Whatever. But also because holiness, the numinous, and transformation, well, they're central to the depth of meaning in Hansel and Gretel. Really? And right now, our woodcutter's terror is how the concept of the numinous is reinforced as being present in the fairy tale. Bollocks, just bollocks. There's just one thing. In place of the word numinous, the word our fairy tale author would have used and been more familiar with is... Pizza. Oh, absolutely. Uh, no. It's the same word that Thoreau used. Sublime. In German, it's das Erhabene. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. Now, as I explained in episode three, sublime was a word and concept that's nearly synonymous with the numinous and was pretty popular in the Grimm zeitgeist. Naturally. Not to mention central to the entire agenda of romanticism. Who cares? Historically, though, it goes back at least as far as the first century. I don't have time for this. An essay on the subject of the sublime, which had been assumed to be written by a certain Longinus, a third century literary critic, it's now quite famous. A horse! A horse! My kingdom for a horse! All right, so it's not quite that famous. Roger that. And this is an important point, because despite the age of the text and its current fame, it was never particularly well-known, even after it began circulating more freely around Europe in the middle of the 16th century. What kind of crap is this? In fact, its fame possibly dates from 1694, when a text known as Critical Reflections on Longinus 
and it became a central argument in the so-called quarrel of the ancients and moderns. For sure. Pseudo-intellectual bullshit. Well, once again, I believe there's every possibility our fairy tale author wanted us to take this idea of the sublime into account when thinking about our woodcutter's terror. I don't think so. No, seriously. There's an important reason for that, and one that we'll eventually get to. Uh, just not now. That is so typical. For now, that one single word, sublime, well, that means our fairy tale could not have been written before the 16th and possibly even the 17th century, when this now famous essay became more widely available and better known. This is the biggest pile of crap I've ever heard. All right, I, I realize that might sound like a perfectly gratuitous and unnecessary factoid to consider. Oh, absolutely. It's just not so far-fetched. In fact, it's another important clue in our search for the age of the fairy tale and the name of its author. Hmm. If you remember back in episode one... No. Oh, come on. In episode one, I said that we would indeed discover that name. Because, as I said, in searching for the truth within this story, we can't help but find the truth about this story. Interesting. And that concept of the sublime is part and parcel of the metaphoric truth within and about Hansel and Gretel. Johnny, is this true? Because if it is... Part 6 Teil 6 In which we find out exactly what not to do when things go south. South. South which is a wind is not rain. The silence chokes speech does it not. Well, this is the moment in so many fairy tales when we find out what doesn't work. A water gun won't help much. See, that too is integral to the fairy tale genre, as well as true to life. We try all the logical things first. Exactly. We panic and try the least imaginative stuff. Certainly. We repeat the same old mistakes. Uh-huh. Or make bigger ones. Precisely. And we often try to out-muscle the problem. Oh, absolutely. Like getting a bigger boat. That's the first time you've done something right. And we do all this before daring to come to the conclusion that the real solution is the simple solution. Of course. The bold solution. Amen. The transformative solution. All right already, get on with it. Something we spend much of our lives ignoring, deprecating even. We're just out and out running away from. What? Option B. Ah! And while it usually consists in the unthinkable, it's neither the easy way or the hard way out. Just something that, until the change in the status quo, would never have occurred to us, despite the fact that it was usually there, staring us right in the face the whole time. All I can see is the end. Well, just like the sign that says, in emergency, break glass. 
Without the emergency of a transformative ordeal, it might not have even been perfectly appropriate. Have you ever felt like shutting the fuck up? Bottom line is, the usual way we've always done things no longer works. For the love of everything sacred and holy, would you please shut your yappa? And the proper solution to that may or may not amount to breaking the glass ceiling. It always amounts to soul-making, which is exactly what transformation is and what we're going to learn from Hansel and Gretel. Oh no, you can't be serious. That is some bullshit right there. Hey! Hey, you! Hey, you! Alright, so maybe I've just about put you to sleep with all of this business of definitions and talk of transformation. Roger, Dad! In our next episode, we wake up from a sound sleep to the sounds of the woodcutter and his wife in bed, doing uh, something other than soul-making. Ooh, I like that. Uh, no, no, they're, they're just talking. Uh, <laughs> and what they're saying amounts to option A. Oh no. The most logical solution they can come up with to the nasty problem gift the deity has brought to their party. Amen. So, here's the story so far. Once upon a time, there was a poor woodcutter who lived before a great forest. He had it so rough, he could barely feed his wife and his two children. Once, there wasn't even any more bread. And he was terrified. Oh! Now, here's the next part that we're going to work on in episode 15. And finally... So at night in bed, his wife said to him, Early tomorrow, take both children into the woods. Give them what's left of the bread. Make them a big fire. Then go off and leave them alone. Well, thanks for listening. I sure hope you're enjoying the podcast, since I sure as hell enjoy sharing it with you. And uh, once again, if you would please, please, please share it with someone you think might enjoy it too. That would make uh, like four or five of us now? I don't think so. Or is that still just the two of us? Don't bother me. Can't you see I'm busy? Oh my god. Alrighty then. Ciao a tutti. Ciao ciao.